When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our central membership for the first year. And now to today's episode. Hi everyone, this is Andreas Steno from Real Vision speaking. We are looking for the upside in 2023 amidst the turbulence in financial markets and in the economy. And in our new series, Looking for the Upside, we want to give you the chance to learn more about a sector or a space that may be poised for opportunities in 2023. With so much doom and gloom last year, we've taken the time to seek out areas with an upside. This is not investment advice, but we want to leave you with the opportunity to explore further and do your own research about an opportunity this year. So today we start with nuclear power. Our guest, Mark Nilsson, says there is a sea of change going on in the nuclear space. So we hope you enjoy the interview. It is now my great pleasure to introduce Mark Nelson from the Radiant Energy Group, the managing director of the Radiant Energy Group, rather. And uh, Mark, you've been a fan favorite at Real Vision already last time when we uh, had you on. So it's a great pleasure to have you here again. Uh, I look very much forward to this conversation. Great to be here, Stina. Mark, um, we're obviously looking for opportunities in 2023 since we are a community of investors at Real Vision. And uh, since it's a very tricky environment out there, um, we wanted to take a discussion on the outlook for nuclear in light of this turbulence that we see across the globe, both in geopolitics, but also in financial markets. So I wanted to start with sort of a um, brief assessment of the outlook for investments in the nuclear space, both in Europe and in the US. We've seen a lot of decisions taken this year on the back of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So in the big picture, how do you assess the investment outlook and the amount of decisions taken to create new nuclear power plants throughout the course of 22 and into the beginning of 23? Yeah, well, First, I want to say that nuclear has been a very weird place for investors, especially investors looking for public equities, because uh, over the last couple of decades, there have been very few Western nuclear projects. Many of those projects have been under the auspices of uh, state-run or state-owned companies. They have been, because there's very few of them, we don't get enough practice, and the construction projects have gone poorly. And then for nuclear plants that have already existed, because of the invention of wholesale electricity markets around the end of the 90s and early 2000s, the earnings at nuclear plants uh, at these utilities have been severely damaged in North America due to extreme competition with very, very cheap natural gas that itself was losing money for many investors. And then again, against uh, subsidized renewables that were given priorities ESG treatment from 
capital, um, ESG treatment, if you will, policy treatment from governments. And nuclear was kept out of many of those schemes, but forced to compete in a market unfairly against other low carbon resources that got to take advantage of other financings to get constructed and very favorable commercial situations where, say, um, ESG-oriented tech companies, the FANG companies, would buy renewable electricity contracts or they would buy the certificates, then that money would go to renewables. Then the nuclear plants would lose money, but they would build their, uh, the tech companies would build their server farms in places where they could be assured of power from the nuclear plants that they didn't even purchase. I mean, they would use the power, but the nuclear plants would then be suffering in this awful thunderdome of low returns, low revenues, along with natural gas plants against the subsidized renewables. And it was just a, it was a very bad environment for nuclear plant revenues in many countries. Then in Europe, where nuclear plants ought to have done better, government after government worked very hard to kneecap those plants, to destroy their finances, to get them shut down, to drive talent out of the industry, and to attempt to cut apart the plants and, and get rid of it. So for example, in Sweden, uh, Sweden was a place where the nuclear plants were still making money despite severe competition from subsidized renewables, tons of hydro, and lots of interconnections with other countries. Well, then the nuclear plants were taxed at a level that would ensure that they were no longer financially sustainable as sort of a ersatz phase out, right? So in this environment, it's very dangerous to think of putting your money into anything nuclear. Unstable revenues, um, green green oriented energy ministries trying to figure out ways to go around the market to destroy nuclear plants, uh, bad construction uh, techniques, bad construction management. And then in the nuclear fuel cycle, you had a problem where expectations of high nuclear usage were bashed by post Fukushima Daiichi changes where Japan turned off almost all, you know, what 30% of its electricity or more were coming, was coming from nuclear and they turned it down to zero for year after year. And then the expansion of nuclear slowed in several countries, for example, a wave of reactors that were expected to already be under construction and even in operation in China were not built. And although China is getting back to building, that meant that on the commodity side, on the uranium side, a bunch of mines that were ready to go because of high prices in 2006, seven and eight were shut in or just added to a glut of uranium that basically made it to where if you had bet on uranium for a lot of the years around Fukushima Daiichi, you did very poorly. So that's a bunch of negativity. That's a bunch of reasons why if you passed as the guide, maybe nuclear isn't the way to go. What are the reasons that there is a sea change going on now in nuclear that may, and I'm not trying to offer investment advice, just wanting people to understand the titanic forces in play that's, that are bringing back nuclear, but that may lead to a different to 2023 than 2013. Here's a big one. Although countries say they care about carbon, there is some limit to how much they're willing to suffer. So for example, Germany says carbon, 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 but they shut off nuclear first and keep their coal plants. They'll buy carbon indulgences if they need to. They'll buy up the natural gas that was headed to developing countries around the world, and they'll burn it instead. And if they need to just put their carbon goals later, they'll do that. That is a dangerous situation for nuclear because nuclear is the only firm, reliable 
climate proof uh base load electricity technology i know there are some people out there very smart that say that you don't need base load electricity you don't need stable generation anymore because you can just make people turn down or turn up their own consumption of energy to match the weather you know the sun or the wind but what we're seeing in germany is that's not quite true they're just keeping and burning their fossil fuels however coal plants around the world are not receiving the necessary investments to stay online as coal plants retire in the west it's leaving a big hole in the market for that electricity we're seeing very high prices for electricity into the far future for futures contracts across europe we're seeing electricity prices at levels that would make nuclear plants extremely profitable with even basic competency in building them in, the, in, in Europe. That's special. I just saw some recent news that in Turkey, a country that sort of straddles in, in many ways, Asia, developing country, advanced nation. I mean, it's right there in the center of things Turkey is. Well, they're getting a Russian nuclear plant that only started construction in, I think it was late 2017, early 2018. That's when the, the official construction started. They're hoping to start up the reactor this year in 2023, meaning Russia is exporting a reactor that even during this war is getting finished at a speed five years that would make it investable if we in the West could build reactors of the same technology at that speed. Can we? Maybe. People talk about advanced reactors a lot. I, I hate the term, but if people are going to use them, I guess I'll use them too. There are designs for reactors that have advanced features, either safety or lower staffing needed or higher temperatures produced. And often these reactors are smaller. In a way, it's, it's uh, rebooting Western construction, you might say, to start with the small reactors we used to be capable of building 50 years ago and using that to learn how to rebuild nuclear. Mark, um, one of the arguments that I hear a lot from institutional investors is that the average construction speed in Asia of nuclear power plants is much better than it is in the West. Um, the latest example we have of a construction in Europe being taken into operation is the one in Finland, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and it took quite a, a long time to, to actually finish that project, right? But relative to the speed that we see in China and South Korea, two of the regions that have actually added marginally to their uh, amount of operational reactors in um, in place um, is quite devastating to watch from, from the West, right? So is this a consequence of us not building nuclear, nuclear power plants over the past couple of decades? Is that why we're so slow? Yes, absolutely. It's not because our plants are safer, we're more careful. It's because we are less skilled and we lost a generation that was experienced at building nuclear plants. Imagine how experienced construction managers are with Rosatom, the state Russian energy corporation. Their exported reactors just now and in the last few years, they're exporting and have completed reactors in Iran, in India, in China. Russia is building in China, um, in Bangladesh, in Turkey now. They're starting plants in Egypt. They're building and they're almost done with plants in Belarus. They've got an immense amount of experience across many different languages in getting plants built, you know, maybe eight or nine years at first, and then seven and then six. And what if, if they keep to this schedule in Turkey, that's game changing. Five years for a developing nation to get a, a state-of-the-art Russian nuclear plant. 
that's insane. So yeah, I agree. It's been a little disturbing to be a Westerner watching us get wrecked and not because they have secret technologies. It's just because of being able to manage construction projects, complicated construction projects well. And it's not because of, say, um, unsafe conditions for workers, right? So I saw news stories come out, out when a single worker was killed in on the Bangladesh, working on the Bangladesh plant. Andreas, we've got we've got workers get killed just in like driving accidents, say in 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 Western reactors under construction, where it's very unfortunate. You you know that people drive fast and they it it's just immense construction projects are difficult to manage safely. It's an obsession in the engineering industries because nobody wants to see a worker get hurt. It's very bad for for well needing to compensate workers. It's bad for morale. Slows down everything brings a lot of negative media attention. There's reasons beyond just the life of our, our fellow man to not have it. And as far as I can tell, construction is nearly as safe in developing countries getting Russian and Chinese reactors as it is over here. So then the reactor technology. I've heard I've heard Western reactor ex not really experts, but nuclear people say, oh, I'm sure they're building it fast because the reactors aren't as good as bullshit. A lot of it is in the quality of operations, and quality of operations is pretty level around much of the world because of the extreme peer pressure and the voluntary quality organizations that almost every country involved in nuclear participates in to get exacting, demanding uh, <laughs> investigations from around the world in your plant, issuing reports, helping you make changes to meet global standards of reliability and performance. So. I don't see these five and six year constructions as being due to inferior technology. It's because they have practice. And, you know, some of the practice is because the states have been interested in nuclear. But that's what we're seeing here, Andreas. We're seeing, say, the French nation, the French state suddenly decide they need to get better at nuclear and need to start building more. The Brit, well, the reason nuclear is being built at all here is that there's pretty much uniform opinion across the British elite that they need to have nuclear being built. And these massive projects are really state-backed in the end because they're of state importance. That should make investors a little uncomfortable to hear because if it relies on the state, it can die by the state, right? States can be, nations, governments can become distracted or they might be taken over, hijacked by green parties, which is the reason why we're still losing nuclear plants in the middle of a generational energy crisis in Europe. Andreas, not to get too distracted, but we're about three weeks away from losing a 1,000 megawatt plant in Belgium at the heart of the European energy crisis. And it's being shut down. It's a pretty young plant. It's being shut down for no particular reasons except to meet the scheduled phase out of all of Belgium's reactors in the next 36 months. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, if there's the risk of governments turning against it, I know I'm get I'm actually trying to get all the negative out of the way here because Governments are also turning towards it. Strongly pro-nuclear parties are smashing up recent elections. 
in Italy, strongly pro-nuclear politicians have taken power. In Sweden, strongly pro-nuclear politicians have taken power. One of the big changes in nuclear over the last year is that the Koreans are back. The Koreans, some of the best builders of nuclear plants on planet Earth, they are back with a vengeance after a five-year gap of a of an anti-nuclear president trying to destroy their exports, destroy their nuclear build programs, shut down their existing nuclear. That's gone. And they're back and they're pitching very competitive, compelling deals to build Korean reactors across the world. So what's our response going to be? What I expect we're going to see, especially as young people continue to replace older anti-nuclear folks in both the polls and voting and in government, it's being seen in polling showing that uh, even anti-nuclear people are becoming pro-nuclear across Europe. Eventually, that's going to be reflected in election results. And those nations are going to get very serious about energy crises like the ones we're seeing, about dependency on foreign natural gas. And the only solution that's right there in front of their face that's been demonstrated over decades is large-scale nuclear programs. Mark, one of the things I'd like to assess as well is the outlook for the commodity uranium in itself. Um, and one of the key gauges for uranium is obviously the amount of nuclear reactors in operation on, on a running basis, right? So if we look at planned or proposed shutdowns of the existing fleet relative to planned or proposed new additions to the fleet. What's your takeaway? Uh, we've basically seen a flatlining amount of operational nuclear reactors since the mid 80s, just below 450 or thereabout. So going forward, will we see more or less than 450 operational reactors globally? Don't worry so much about the number. Uh, let me give you an example. There are a few 500, uh, approximately 500 megawatt British reactors that are old, like, I don't call many reactors old. Even reactors that are older than the British reactors are not old. But the British reactors, they, they're aged. And, they, and the major components that are aging cannot be replaced. So they need to shut down. So that would make it go from 458 to 457, for example, if you were looking at the number there. Um, however, when this new Finnish reactor that started up, the Okulioto project that you alluded to earlier in the show, when that starts up, well, guess what? They're back at near full power right now after a few issues with some pumps, not safety related, but equipment that just wasn't manufactured right by the Germans. Anyway, those reactor, that reactor that's turned on, it's up at 1600, more than three times 500, right? So even if it would go down a unit, we're getting massive reactors turned back on. So what we really need to do is look at capacity. And what we're seeing is that reactors, older reactors, almost every single old reactor in the world is lasting longer than ever expected. We're going to see life extensions almost everywhere where democratic politics are not hijacked by green parties. And where is that? Germany and Belgium mainly. Across the rest of the world with nuclear, we're just not expecting many closures at all, at all. So in the US, there were analyses back in 2018, 19, 2020 that predicted half of the US fleet needing to close for economic reasons. Uh, as it's those analyses are, are 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 gone they're they're rotten instead we have say what we've seen in the state of michigan where a uh, 800 megawatt plant closes one of the smallest u.s reactors closes and it causes this 
crisis in the state where the Democrats wanted to open, the Republicans wanted to reopen, the owner, the decommissioning owner that's supposed to just sit there and cut off the plant, they keep petitioning D.C. for support to reopen this small, older nuclear plant. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing cancellations of closures. We're seeing massive profits for companies that were able to keep their plants through the awful years of the fracking boom. So we're seeing ideological turnarounds, ideological 180s. So in California, one of the biggest stories in nuclear last year is the home of the anti-nuclear movement, the state that gave us the worst of the anti-human, anti-nuclear environmentalism, turnaround. And the political, the democratic political establishment turned and ran away from that, decided to keep Diablo Canyon open for another, well, they say five years, but it'll probably be 60 or 80 years, thus signaling that any country closing nuclear for ideological reasons is on its own, is abandoned. The rest of the world is moving the other way. And that's in the democratic West, a place where we need to see a return of nuclear because it's also some of the richest places in the world. We we wanna see nuclear growth there. And also that's where a lot of the equities are gonna be. You asked about uranium, the use of uranium. Well, as Japan, gets more and more pro-nuclear at every level of government. Now, it's not all levels of government, and what we're waiting on in Japan is local courts and some of the regulators. Japan's politicians want nuclear back on. The plants, they got all nine reactors that they wanted to have going into this winter on. So they met a fairly intense goal of having all nine of of the currently opened reactors on and working through the winter. They want more. They're planning for more. That is going to be a major sign that the worst of the post-Fukushima slump is is beyond us. Now, that doesn't guarantee one way or another about uranium. It's just it expands the current production deficit. We are using more uranium than we're mining. Mining is still not profitable marginally in a lot of the world at today's uranium prices. We are going to use more uranium. We're going to need more uranium, even just with the rate we're using it now. So the question is when when that ends up moving the needle in the market. And that's not something I'll speculate about. There are people who are obsessed with that one question and spend all their time and energy and effort on it. And I'll, if you're interested, I'll give you some, give you some people I think are, are very interesting and informed on that topic and you can dive right into it. But the broad, the broad parameters are this. Even though a few more reactors are being shut down, The reactors that remain are outstanding, they're performing well, they're more profitable than ever in much of the world, and they're being life extended. They're even being upgraded. That's one of the few ways we've grown nuclear in the West, despite shutdowns and uh, lack of building new. It's where you renovate a reactor to expand its power production. And the expansions have been anywhere from 5% up to to 25% in some extreme cases. That's uh, almost free money in the bank. You're fixing parts anyway, and you're just increasing the size and the output a little bit of the parts beyond the reactor vessels. So we're seeing those upgrades instead of closures. That means that the net amount of nuclear capacity on the grid is set to grow pretty much continuously from here on out. And that nuclear electricity should recover this year to its all-time peak, uh, which occurred before Fukushima Daiichi 2006 and seven. And you might ask, why was the peak before Fukushima? I'll tell you, because one of the leading nations for nuclear growth, Japan, 
had a really bad safety culture and had a really rough time operating their reactors. The biggest nuclear plant in the world in Japan, which was not hit in the earthquake and tsunami, was totally offline even before the accident of Fukushima Daiichi just because of constant engineering and safety issues. A solvable engineering issues, solvable safety issues, and we should expect to see outstanding performance coming out of the, of the Fukushima Daiichi recovery era from Japan, leading us back this year, hopefully, to a record high of global production, not a record of global proportion of power, but you'll take your wins where you find them, Andreas, until we get back up to speed again. And then with lots of reactors expected to come along uh, across the world of, uh, say, the Russian, there's, I think there's three countries that may be scheduled to have their first ever nuclear power this year, all of which are Russian export projects done simultaneously. Astonishing, right? And then countries, the closer you get to Russia, the more push you're seeing to complete nuclear plants and to uh, start new ones. So although you mentioned Finland, that's an example of Europe getting a giant new nuclear reactor on. There are reactors that have been under construction for an extremely long time, and there wasn't the urgency to finish the job. Well, now there is, and we should hope to see um, one of the longest running nuclear construction projects in the world at Mahabice in, uh, in Slovakia. We should see that construction finish up this year and hopefully come along, come online and provide power for over a million people. So exciting stuff. All of that means that uranium usage will need to go up. What that does to the price and what that does to the equities, you'll have to talk to a specialist. Fair enough, Mark, and a really interesting set of numbers that you just presented. I'd like to expand a little bit on this discussion on life expectancy of a nuclear plant. Um, if we look at the average age of the current operational reactors across the globe uh, and look back in history a little bit, uh, since we had that peak in building activity uh, in the 70s and into the early 80s, it's not difficult to calculate the average age of the fleet, right? Uh, it's probably right. in the mid-30s to late-30s by now. So when do you expect this mountain of replacement to actually hit us from an investment of, perspective? Of needing to replace it. Yeah. This is where I have a fairly extreme view compared to what other nuclear professionals are willing to say. Often it's because they haven't even considered it. And it's the following. You can replace every part of almost every nuclear plant. One of the only parts that is not yet being replaced is the heart of the plant, the reactor vessel, the giant tea kettle, you might say, at the, at the center of nuclear plants. But that means that if you can replace all the other parts, assuming you haven't been kneecapped by, by bad legislation from green parties, you should be able to keep operating as long as that heart keeps beating, as long as that reactor pressure vessel does well. And what do we mean by do well? We don't mean the internals. All of those can be replaced. You open it up and replace everything, the equipment, the fuel, the uh, structures that hold everything in place, control rods, all of that can be replaced. The question that limits the life of these plants then is typically, how is the reactor pressure vessel steel doing over time? Well, what would be causing a problem for this stainless steel? It's that neutrons, little bitty subatomic particles are flying out and they're hitting the walls of the nuclear reactor. Not that many, because you want those neutrons to be making reactions for you. You want to keep them in the fuel area. You want to keep them contained. You don't want them escaping and damaging a re reactor vessel, but uh, some of them do. The question is how the steel gets more brittle over time because of that. 
the neutron embrittlement of the steel is a key question because this steel has to contain ultra high pressures of water under high temperatures, not super high temperatures, but pretty high temperatures over long periods of time. What we're finding, Andreas, is that the steel is doing just fine. So although safety officers at nuclear fleets and then, and then the executives at the nuclear fleets are, are very sensitive about talking publicly, they don't want to scare people or sound irresponsible, they keep saying, well, okay, 10 more years, 10 more years, 10 more years, say in France or in Europe, in the US, they're saying 20 more years, 20 more years. It doesn't take many 20 more years before you're looking at a century reactor. Across America, applications have been submitted to the NRC to extend reactors to 80 years. A bunch of those were accepted until Biden came into office and there's still this completely absurd political approach to managing nuclear safety where they appoint Republican or Democratic uh, nuclear regulatory commissioners. And even though the Democratic Party has turned to almost completely pro-nuclear stance, a lot of the people at the NGOs and the lawyers and the, you know, the various interest groups the people in the swamp ecosystem, you might say, people are still plucked out of there to go gum up the works under democratic administrations at the NRC. So when the when the new uh, commissioners were seated under Biden, the first thing they did was rip up a bunch of the 80-year applications that had already been accepted by the safety experts at the NRC, and there and and that was considered by the nuclear bears, a sign that you can't just assume the reactors will operate. But none of that has anything to do with the steel. The steel is fine. The question is, are we going to get the politics right? Well, the companies that had their 80-year license applications ripped up, they've reapplied. And as far as we can tell, we're looking forward to a good result there. And then in Europe, where it used to be they, that the anti-nuclear people pretended that 40 years was the, life, that was the maximum that's be, being revealed is clearly false. And the longer the oldest reactors keep going, the stronger the evidence that the slightly less old reactors will also be okay. Does that make sense? So if you've got a reactor that's been going for almost 50 years and it goes to 51, 52, 53, then you have an evidence base useful for a 40-year reactor to keep going 41, 42, 43. So as long as there's some oldest reactors in the world continuing to operate, it, you can't really claim just as a technology, you have to shut down. You would have to say, well, let's look at the steel. And at the point we're looking at the steel, we're finding it's, it's good. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. And anyway, if the steel wasn't good, you could do what the Russians do, which is fire up these heat guns and heat up the reactor steel to diffuse some of the stress. It's called the annealing where you take out this tension, you take out the cracks, you take out anything that might be causing a loss of strength or a loss of um, uh, ductility, and you heat it up. And then the way the Russians look at it, they add 10 years for annealing operation. It's like winding back the clock 10 years on the pressure vessel steel. And again, since every other part can pretty much be replaced of the equipment and the machinery, and then you just have to protect the concrete domes that have metal linings and protect against 
any accidents. If you just maintain those, which is doable, just nice coats of paint, good inspections, taking care that uh, you know nothing cracks the structure, then you just keep going. How long? How long? 80 years, 90 years, 100? I'm predicting that some of these sites will become functionally immortal because even a one, two, three, four billion dollar repair job that gives you the equivalent of a new facility is competitive with pretty much any other way to make reliable electricity. Mark, the final thing I wanted to touch upon uh, now that we have you back at Real Vision is the ramifications of the current geopolitical scenery in Europe and the price action that we see across other energy asset classes relative to nuclear. Since we spoke during the autumn, we've seen almost a landslide in the price of natural gas in Europe, which basically means that the incentive structure has weakened to take the marginal decision to move the electricity grid towards nuclear. Do you fear a scenario of sliding natural gas prices for your optimism uh, on the nuclear sector? No, because the natural gases are way higher than they used to be back when nuclear was still profitable in Europe and the main problem was the politics. I'll say that again. The natural gas prices that we used to see in Europe, it's not clear whether that's going to come again, if ever. The slide, the crash in natural gas prices that we're seeing is many multiples of the cost of natural gas that was expected to anchor the European system from Nord Stream 1 and 2. Okay? Then, the earlier lower natural gas price was low enough to incentivize the continuing of nuclear electricity. Countries had to apply punitive taxes, penalties, and all sorts of political and regulatory interference to attempt to damage nuclear finances enough to shut them down. And they still mostly failed and had to shut them down by by law back when natural gas was way cheaper. So and anyway, I would not be I would not be pro-energy, pro-human if I were upset about an alleviation of an awful energy crisis. I'm not sitting here. I know there's a lot of people in nuclear that get exasperated. They 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 get tired of watching society slip away from building the obviously correct energy technology if we could just learn to commit to it. And they say, you know what? I think we just need blackouts. Well, I just don't want blackouts, even though blackouts have an excellent record of producing pro-nuclear decisions. I don't want to see it. I don't know if the damage and the pain and the suffering is worth it. I will say this. Governor Gavin Newsom in California changed, again, I said it, 180 on nuclear because of being a governor during a blackout. He threw his anti-nuclear allies under the bus. He went back on his word. He personally saw to the destruction of Diablo Canyon and the closure agreement. He personally arranged it. He got the meetings. He wanted it, and he delivered it, a, a turnoff of Diablo Canyon in 2024, 2025. And then he personally orchestrated the saving it once he had a blackout. So I can see why some pro-nuclear people say, you just need the blackouts. That'll change it. Well. I hope we can learn from other people's blackouts and ones that have already occurred. I hope we can learn from what has already happened with Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 and, and the, the dash for extremely permanently expensive liquefied natural gas in Germany, the anchor of Europe's economy, 
I, I just don't think we have to have a bunch of future devastation to make the point. But I'm trying to get nuclear built. And if it happens, we'll be ready for it. I just don't think it's necessary. And I don't wish it would happen. Now, a slide in natural gas prices or increases is something a little bit less extreme than hoping for blackouts. But I still feel that a declining natural gas price, although it does take pressure off of the uh, Green Party officials, lawyers and children's book authors that control energy ministries across across Europe, which is just one of those unfathomable things that I think we're going to look back and think, all the way some people think about barbaric medieval practices, we're going to see like putting, you know, natural gas lawyers as Green Party energy ministers, one of the colossal mistakes of our time. I think we can still save those Belgian reactors and German reactors without requiring a blood sacrifice. And I don't know how, but I trust that the spike of pro-nuclear sentiment in across demographics in Europe is going to lead to elections that hand over the energy ministries from the from the barbarians in the Green Party over to people who can be responsible with the lesson of Russia in fresh hindsight, and that in 2024 and beyond, we're going to be able to revive, rejuvenate, and save uh, still operating nuclear plants in Europe that have been given death sentences. I hope. So we'll see. Fingers crossed, Mark. Um, at least I've noticed how some German politicians have started taking victory laps now that the price of natural gas is a bit lower again. But you're absolutely spot on. The current spot level of Dutch natural gas is still in between six and seven times what it used to be. It's not really something to celebrate. It depends. It? I wanted to alter that just a moment and say the Netherlands is a country we haven't mentioned but it's one where the nuclear operator went from begging the Dutch government for a contract for difference or a price stabilization mechanism around, I don't know, 45, $50 a megawatt hour, something like that, to making so much money on their one little reactor that they could use cash alone to fund the building of an entire fleet just from annual revenue from a single reactor, mostly unhedged. In that. <laughs> do, you, do you see what I mean? So that the, yeah. the Dutch example, and now the government is finally moving towards getting a large nuclear program. Who are they going to get it from? The Dutch? Or, or sorry, the Koreans? Are they going to get it from the French? Are they going to get it from Westinghouse? Maybe even some combination? Not sure. But they are focused on large nuclear reactors, the one that we've struggled to build. I think it's also that the Dutch feel that they can manage colossal engineering projects. After all, they do it to survive, especially in a time of slightly rising sea levels. They do it to survive as a nation and to protect their population. I think they have confidence they can build projects of that importance well, and and the natural gas price is still enough to make nuclear extremely profitable in that nation. You don't want to see Belgium shut down the reactors, but that's going to make their the nuclear plants in Netherlands just astonishingly rich. And uh, I think we're going to see that turn into long-term profits, stable profits, long-term high-price contracts for that power that a lot, that are are basically bankable in building starting future plans. So we'll mm -hmm. see. But I like the Dutch example in this case. Yeah, it is a good example. And um, the interesting thing for the year and the years ahead is whether the institutional money will flow back into the nuclear space. At least I'm sensing a trend.
among my speaking partners in uh, in European institution. So uh, fingers crossed. Mark Nelson, once again, a great pleasure to host you at uh, Real Vision. We hope to have you back again uh, during the year to uh, further assess this nuclear case. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Andreas. Good to be here. What a great conversation with Mark Nelson, the managing director of the Radiant Energy Group. He's certainly very passionate about the upside for nuclear, not just in 2023, but also in the years ahead. And one thing that I've noted from my discussions with Mark is that he finds the political risk surrounding the investment case in nuclear to be fading. And that is of great importance when you assess the opportunities in the nuclear space, since we've had at least a couple of decades of complete standstill in the nuclear sector as a consequence of political decision making. But as of now, we have tailwinds for nuclear in many European countries, including several of the big countries such as France and Poland. And that is a game changer for the outlook for nuclear and for the commodity uranium as well. It is a bit tricky to find direct investments in the nuclear space, um, but I've taken a look at ETFs with a indirect or direct link to the nuclear sector. So if we look at the most direct investment via an ETF into the nuclear space, we have the Van Eck ETF with um, a couple of interesting characteristics. It's called Vanek Uranium Nuclear Energy ETF, and it's above 90% linked to nuclear investments. Uh, it had a decent 2022, and if we trust Mark Nilsson's words, it will likely also see decent upside in the years ahead as this political risk premium is fading in the nuclear sector. Uh, the second uh, ETF that I could highlight in the nuclear space is the so-called Global X Uranium ETF. It is also fairly directly linked to investments in the nuclear sector, uh, with more than 75% of the investments directly linked to uh, nuclear capacity. And um, those are the two ETFs with the best direct exposure to the nuclear space. Um, while if we look at investments directly in the physical commodity uranium, it is a bit more tricky to find ways to express it outside of directly in uranium futures, uh, which is not necessarily a product that everyone's got access to. So look for opportunities via ETFs if you want to exploit the nuclear sector in 2023. According to Mark Nilsson, the managing director of the Radiant Energy Fund, it is a possible upside for this year because the political risk premium is fading around the nuclear sector. Thank you very much for watching this first episode of Looking for the Upside. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.